Good evening, Mr. Hunt. Are you sure your line is secure? I got it. Oh, man, do I get it. Central Intelligence Cinema now has a secure line to the IMF. Benji? Join the IMF. See the world on a monitor. In a closet. That doesn't sound impossible. Next time, I gotta seduce the rich guy. What are you waiting for? I'm jumping out a window! Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Central Intelligence Cinema presents Road to Reckoning. You can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me upset. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny. The state will self-destruct in five seconds. Welcome to episode 48 of Central Intelligence Cinema. The Road to Reckoning rages on with part one of our two-part review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. But without further ado, take it away, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Solo. Bond. James Bond. Natasha Romanoff. Ethan Hunt. Looks later. Elsa Faust. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Do you expect me to talk? I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. Yeah, baby! Special agent, you're not having a very special day, are you? But remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. What do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. The state will self-destruct in five seconds. Recording from an undisclosed dungeon where the person interrogating you has some sexy, sexy shoes. It's a Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And welcome back to the CIC the podcast that is feeling very sexy. This is a very sexy day. It's a very sexy movie. I want to talk like this the whole time. Yeah, it's such a sexy, sexy. <laughs> such a sexy. We are two wild and crazy guys <laughs> talking about the sexy spy movie. <laughs> that is right. We are we are going to get sexy with <laughs> <laughs> Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Yes. Not Mission Impossible 5. That's right. Despite, Don't call it that. Despite what the cover of the DVD says. <laughs> That's right. Because if, God help you, if you say that around Tom Cruise, he may make your head explode with his fists. And we don't want that. We do not want that. Because we need that. all the listeners we can get here. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, we are finally picking back up the road to reckoning. We are under 60 days, my friend, before the brand new one. So, very, very uh, close. Very, very close. But today we are going to take a sexy break. <laughs> sexy break. <laughs> a sexy break. And talk about Rogue Nation. Man, I'm, I'm super excited. So much to talk about. This is a great movie. Should we get into it? Let's do it. The IMF is uniquely trained and highly motivated. Specialist without equal immune to any countermeasures. But it is an agency of chaos. The time has come to dissolve the IMF. Now, I want you to choose your next words very carefully. Where is Hunt? Last I heard, he was tracking the Syndicate. Betsy. Ethan, where are you? The Syndicate is real. A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. Ready or not. 
You want to bring down the syndicate? It's impossible. How do you know we can trust her? Desperate times. Desperate measures. You have your seatbelt on? You asking me that now? Okay, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, released in 2015, directed by Christopher McQuarrie uh, of Way of the Gun, Valkyrie. He was a writer on Jack Reacher, Edge of Tomorrow, and of course he was the director of Fallout and the brand new ones, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Parts 1 and 2. Um, He's a busy fellow. He is a very busy fellow with some big, big hair. That man has big, big hair. You got you to have a certain level of, of cojones to wear your hair that big all the time. <laughs> it's, it's a lifestyle choice. It, it, is a, it is indeed a lifestyle choice. Produced by J.J. Abrams. And, of course, Mr. Tom Cruise, because he Tom Cruise is always going to Tom Cruise. It should be noted that this film was originally slated to come out in Christmas of 2015, but was moved all the way up to July 31st in order to avoid competition from Spectre and Star Wars 7, The Force Awakens, which put a tremendous crunch on the entirety of the post-production team. Shout out to the post-production team. Because <laughs> I, I feel you, my brothers. And honestly... I think they did quite a tremendous job given the fact that they basically lopped off like three or four months of their post-production schedule. But, Uh, you know, this kind of, I don't know if you would say this necessarily established it, but it's certainly rooted in place the fact that a Mission Impossible movie is its own Mission Impossible and it's going to end just before it needs to come out again. It very much is. for some reason, the writer, director, and star can't stop tinkering. That's right. I mean, we're seeing that right now. Exactly. You know, this the new one's supposed to come out in uh, July, July 12th, and they're still recording the score. They're still, <laughs> the, you know, Macquarie is posting things like, well, the total runtime is changing from day to day. It's like, really? You're still editing this? And, uh, you know, Rogue Nation was no different. In fact, it was kind of the start of that trend. Right. Exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> so as far as writing goes, um, McHugh is credited as well as uh, Drew Pierce, who did Iron Man 3, Hobbs and Shaw, and Hotel Artemis. However, uh, Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie admitted that the film didn't really have a script when it went into production, <laughs> which, I mean, that's just kind of what they do now, I guess. Yeah. They, what are four cool things you want to do in our next movie? Right. And then they get a dry erase board and they start thinking of all the cool things. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, we'll take, Tom goes, I'll take these four. Now make a story. Right. I mean, they basically sat around and said, well, what have you always wanted to do in a movie? Well, I want to hang from the side of an airplane. Okay. okay. Let's do that this okay. time. And, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, when, when we get to uh, the next one, one of those things on the board was, I want to see Henry Cavill cock his arms like a gun before he goes into a fight scene. That's definitely one. That's definitely definitely one. That's definitely one of the things we'll do. Yes, for sure. Oh, I will say too, Drew Pierce was actually replaced by Will Staples in May of 2014, and then Staples was then let go when production began that August. And then Christopher McQuarrie took up writing duties while filming with the previous scripts seemingly being largely ignored or thrown out. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> Production had to be halted in February of 2015 so that Macquarie and Cruz could then rework the film's story and ending. It's unknown how much Pierce and Staples had written for the film or how much of their content actually made it into the film. But Pierce was listed on IMDb in the credits and what have you. And McQuarrie is credited as the screenwriter. So <laughs> you got to imagine the execs at Paramount just get into like palpitations I, I don't, when they decide to make another one of these movies. You know, it's it's one of those things where they're like, okay, they're going to make a lot of money. They're going to make a lot of money. Just try to ignore the circus that is going on. Well, and <laughs> it almost seems as, like... As ridiculous as it all seems. <laughs> it almost seems like they just... Because you know, Tom Cruise's acting is... Not only is he a producer... He's functioning as a producer on yeah. these movies. Yeah, he's Whereas just a lot not of stars, in name alone. It's not a star power right. thing. This is Tom he, Cruise like, hey, I'm going to produce this. I really, I'm really jazzed up. I'm, exactly. I'm dialed in. But no, we're not doing that. And he then has the the title to let him get away with saying stuff right. like that. But it's almost like they just said, you know what? Let Tom, Tom. Yes. <laughs> we know that Macquarie is dialed into his level of crazy mm-hmm. and is turning out product yep. despite it. So let them do what they want. When they come to us for more money, then we can ask questions. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cinematography was by Robert Ellswit, uh, who has done a litany of amazing things. He's an Oscar winner. Um, he did Good Night and Good Luck. He also uh, did Ghost Protocol. He got his Oscar for There Will Be Blood. And and man, the photography in this, especially in the motorcycle chase oh, scene, I know, right? is insane. It is so good. The angle, like, I don't even know how they got all this. Like some of the shots, there's like a shot behind the back wheel of, of Tom's bike but slightly off the side and it's leaning. So I don't know if it's mounted to his motorcycle. Yeah, I'm guessing it was like a GoPro or something, but it looks fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's so good. They get so many good angles and so many active angles. And that's what I really like about it. It's not just, it's not all wide shots like they, right. It's, it's insane. Well, and you would think that Ellswit, I mean, you, when you look at his, oeuvre, and <laughs> That he's not a very action-oriented director. Yeah. And so that makes me wonder how many of those shots were probably done by, you know, first AD or second AD that was doing the stunt units. Well, and I think McQuarrie was devising some of this stuff, too. Right. Well, and he's got a good camera eye, too. So he might just say, this is what I want it to look like. Go sort it out, boys. Right. And off you go. But yeah, uh, particularly the car chase. The whole car chase. Yeah. From beginning to end. And of course, you know, some really great car driving by whoever's driving that car. (laughs) Um, but I'm a big fan of car chase scenes yeah I hate bad ones you know you got Bullet with Steve McQueen right up at the top up at the top you got the car chase from Ronan with all the BMWs chasing after Robert De Niro. This one is definitely in that that upper tier absolutely um, because it's so dynamic and it stops, and then it starts again, and then it stops, and then it starts again. Well, and it, and it seems to have a really great pace in in, yes. that, in that manner. You know, you've got these great little pauses, oftentimes with comic relief, mm-hmm. and and it's just enough for you to catch your breath, catch your breath, and then start even though again. there's even though there's so much action in this, especially like you said in the car chase scene, that they know how to pace it so that the audience can take a breath kind of like have a good chuckle about something and then we're off again exactly so it's it's just oh god this movie is great this movie this is gonna be a gush fest (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm gonna agree with you on that one yeah editing um eddie hamilton 
is just, again, just a total badass. I mean, Eddie Hamilton did the first two Kingsman movies. He did X-Men First Class, Kick-Ass 1 and 2. He went on to do Fallout after this, as well as Top Gun Maverick. So here's a guy who knows how to edit action movies. Indeed. So Very much you so. put that combo together... You've, I mean, you're going to win. You're right. going to win. Uh, by the numbers, the m- budget for this movie was $150 million, and the movie made uh, $688.8 million worldwide. A mere pittance. Up. Yeah. <laughs> the profit margins are just, it seems like a ton, which, well, it is. But it's also almost identical to that of Ghost Protocol which you wouldn't necessarily know given, you know, when we reviewed Ghost Protocol, it seemed like that movie had a lot of budgetary yeah. situations going on with it, but it's really about the same profit margins. But It's it, making monies. I think there was less pushback from the studio for this one. Well, but they also weren't coming off of uh, three, right. which was not great. Right, whereas Ghost Protocol was spectacular. Right, so they were like, okay, you guys... All right. Okay. okay. We'll, 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 we'll give you the move. We're we'll going to let Tom money. Tom. <laughs> we're going to let Macquarie Macquarie. Yeah. But when you guys need more money, we're going to have to have a talk. I'm <laughs> that, that, that is the rule. <laughs> and then they'll get what they want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as far as music, they brought in uh, Joe Kramer for this one, who is a frequent collaborator with McHugh. And that goes all the way back to 2000 on The Way of the Gun as well as in uh, Jack Reacher in 2012. So may have been a sort of a sentimental pick for McHugh because he really doesn't do that many big movies. If you look at his CV, it's just like Mm -hmm. small TV and stuff like that. I thought it was pretty good, though. I mean... It didn't detract. I don't know that it necessarily was... I don't think it was a highlight. Yeah. But um, it moved the movie along where it needed to move. It did its job. Yeah. I think the action was just so good in this movie. Yeah, it's kind of hard to score that. We'll see. It's just... Right. What else are you going to do? And one of the biggest set pieces in the movie uses no music whatsoever in when they're in the uh, Taurus. Right. And it's all underwater because it just makes it that much more... They're trying to heighten the tension. Exactly. Yeah. So, and for me, this is the movie where they finally locked in the best casting. You know, as much as I liked... Paula Patton and, and Maggie Q, and they were set to reprise their roles from Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and Mission Impossible 3, respectively. But both actresses dropped out of the project due to scheduling conflicts. In addition, this is kind of a weird little fun fact. Uh, Jessica Chastain was the first choice to play the female lead, but declined because she didn't like the prospect of spending up to six months training for the role. This is actually the second time after Oblivion where she turned down a role in a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, and then Rebecca Ferguson was unanimously the second choice as the studio Cruise and McQuarrie liked her work in The White Queen, which I haven't even seen yet. And what's interesting too is, and I don't know a whole lot about what the Ilsa role was supposed to be initially, but apparently it changed drastically from their initial draft of, and I don't think she was even named Ilsa. I think she had a totally different name on top of it. Well, and, they, and I, you know, I thought about that on both rewatchings of this movie. I feel like the character was supposed to be German to begin with, with the name like Ilsa Faust. Right. Right. But then you get this awesome English actress. Well, I think she's uh, Swedish, actually. Is she? I think so. She's born in Sweden and grew up you know, grew up in Sweden. That explains why the accent's so flippy floppy. <laughs> okay. 
And I like, too, the fact that because she is Swedish, they play on that whenever she's interacting with Victor, the bone doctor. He starts talking in Swedish. Yeah. They start talking back and forth in Swedish. Like, ah, <laughs> That explains why her accent was so good, speaking Swedish. Okay. Yeah, sure, there you go. Sure. I mean, you know, I speak a little Swedish, like John Candy from Splash. <laughs> <laughs> ask your grandparents, kids. That's right. Are we at that level where we have to say, ask your, not just ask your parents, ask your grandparents? Well, Splash was what, 1982? Yeah. So, yeah. Oof. Okay. Sorry, sorry, Ben. <laughs> sorry to confront you with your own pending mortality, Ben. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> anyway, you know what? Rebecca Ferguson is awesome. Yes, she is, indeed. And like I said, I mean, I feel like this is when they really locked down the team that I really like seeing yes, out there. Because like, it, the, I don't want to say the weakest link was always the female character. Yeah. But they were none of the movies had a significantly strong enough female character that could keep up with Ethan. Yes. And keep up with Tom Cruise. Yeah, exactly. And convincingly. It, yeah. And Rebecca Ferguson is definitely that woman. I oh, mean, no doubt. I would have watched this whole movie without in fact probably would have preferred to watch this whole movie without <laughs> Tom Cruise with Rebecca Ferguson doing everything that I Tom would, was doing. I would watch that movie nonstop. I would probably I would probably own that movie on all forms of media. <laughs> I mean, I was even watching uh, behind the scenes stuff and, you know, she did all the training for the, all the underwater training as mm-hmm. far as holding her breath and stuff like that. I mean, she's a badass. Right. And for the record, since you can't just find, you can find out that Tom Cruise can hold his breath for, for six, six minutes, minutes, but you really have to dig into the internet to find out how long Rebecca Ferguson can hold her breath. Four point four minutes and four seconds in case anybody cares. That's a four and a half, or that's a three and a half minutes longer than I can. Right. So at my height, when I swam as a child, I could hold my breath for about a minute and a half. Yeah. And when you think about the fact that she's got smaller lungs, well, I don't know, it's Tom Cruise. She might actually have bigger lungs than Tom Cruise. <laughs> uh, four minutes for a woman is probably pretty stellar. Yeah. From a breath holding category. I think it's pretty stellar for anybody. And someone who's not a robot who doesn't need to breathe. Exactly. She's not a cyborg like Tom Cruise. Exactly. So <laughs> kudos to her and her breath holding abilities. That's right. Indeed. Indeed. But uh, yeah, getting into the cast, obviously. Tom Cruise is back as Ethan Hunt, who was only five years younger in this film than John Voight was in the first one. And if you think about the way John Voight looked in the 1996 Mission Impossible mm-hmm. movie, and then you look at Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I think Tom Cruise is my age in this movie. And I pointed that out to my wife when I watched it. And I'm like, <laughs> I still look better looking than he does, though, don't I? And she just kept looking at her phone. So <laughs> I had never got an answer. Then obviously we have Ilsa Faust, played by the lovely, oh, God, Rebecca mm-hmm. Ferguson. Rebecca Ferguson is Ben's Haley Atwell. Indeed. <sighs> uh, and then, of course, all the favorites. We've got Benji back, you know, Simon Pegg. Still is, doesn't get to wear a mask. Still doesn't get to wear a mask. But there's hey, a whole fantasy scene yes, about it. Yeah, there's a hypothetical fantasy scene about it. <laughs> uh, Luther's back, uh, bringing the meats as per usual. Um, I actually. Per- particularly like his role in this one because he gets something to chew on a little bit because there's yeah ghost protocol he just shows up at the very end right he's like the problem solver which he is in this too really yeah but it's a much more actively involved problem solving yeah role. i liked the amount of analytical 
prowess that they gave him in this one versus like almost he's almost able to psychologically know what Ethan's thinking just based on, you know, drawings, based on his movements. Right. But I mean, he gets to be the Luther from two. Yes. Right. Where he is an active participant rather than just a hole plugger. Right. Or just a punchline. Something to let Benji lever. be in two places at once. Right, exactly. That's what he felt like in the last movie, for sure. Yeah. And then, of course, we got uh, Brant. Jeremy Renner's back as Brant. Kind of in a more administrative. administrative yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's fine. Can, I'll be honest with you. If I had the opportunity to just have the bulk of my scenes with Alec Baldwin, yeah. I would probably want to do that, too. Because the repartee between the two of them was amazing. Yeah. And it was kind of kind of gracious of him, really, to come back after Ghost Protocol when I'm sure that you know there were people telling him that he was going to take over the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. And to then, you know, be humble enough to come back in in a very uh, smaller role like that, where he's not even doing action sequences. Or one could argue maybe he came back because he didn't have to do any real action sequences. Or there's that. Because he he was knee deep in Avengers at that point in time. That's true. Maybe that was enough for him and just to sit around in a suit. A good paycheck and he gets to act without Alec Baldwin. Yeah, exactly. And, And still be a key element to what's happening in the film yes absolutely because he does some great he does have some really good performances especially at the uh charity auction oh yeah absolutely like he does some good work in there too and then of course speak of the devil we have alec baldwin as alan hunley the director of the cia and eventually the secretary of the imf spoiler (laughs) but he just choose scenery oh absolutely the man is just fantastic in this movie like i said there's no man that can deliver the whole ethan hunt is the what is it the living manifestation of destiny destiny i mean anybody else says that line and you just roll your eyes and go oh god come on but with the baldwin voice and the level of conviction that comes out with it you're just like yeah, he is, isn't he? He is. You're right, <laughs> you're, Mr. Baldwin. You're right, Mr. Baldwin. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what you need is to get me a cheeseburger <laughs> with no pickles and fries, lightly salted, and a Diet Coca-Cola. Yes, sir, Mr. Baldwin. Yes, sir, yes, sir, Mr. Baldwin. Mr. Baldwin. You, would you like that wrapped or unwrapped, sir? Unwrapped. <laughs> unwrapped. <laughs> and then we've got Solomon Lane, played by Sean Harris, who is fantastic. Oh, he absolutely is. He is like... Also, can I just say, he looks like the Bizarro World version of Simon Pegg. He kind of does. He's like, Simon Pegg enters the Bizarro World and becomes Sean Harris. <laughs> you know, he's I've seen him in a lot of things. The thing I know him most, that I identify him with, other than this movie, is Prometheus. Okay. Because um, he plays the first guy who bites the big one inside the cave. But he's all bearded and kind of, you know, <laughs> punk looking in that. Right. And, I, so, and I'm like, is that the, the, oh my God, that is that guy. Yeah, he looks so much he, different clean shaven. He looks otherworldly almost. He, he looks like a Bond villain. Yes, very much he so. Really, even with the kind of weird lispy accent thing that he had going on there. Oh, and he's so... Uh, Low key. Just, yeah, but it but it's so menacing. Yes. He's he got looks this, like he's got death behind his eyeballs. Yeah, like he has this level of menace. Like every time he gets mad at Ilsa and he does this like sharp breathing thing that mm-hmm. he does, it's so, it's like, oh God, he's going to fucking kill a motherfucker right now. Right, right. Like, it works. So I enjoy the fact that we have, especially after Ghost Protocol, 
we have a really good villain yes. in, this, in this movie. Definitely uh, sort of redeem themselves in that department. And we've got uh, Atlee, the head of intelligence in Great Britain, or head of MI6, rather, played by Simon McBurney, who does a good job. I mean... He, he, he definitely does British bureaucrat pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, that works for me. Um, and then <laughs> I really like the casting of Tom Hollander as the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Right. Like, he's just... I just like him as an actor, I think. I, I do too. And he doesn't usually play... Seri- he usually plays super serious roles or kind of silly roles. And in this one, he kind of got to be he both. He got to be both. <laughs> like, after after he gets the truth serum, he gets yeah. to... Yeah, hands are very warm. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's, it's and Atlee shot him. Yes, yes, Atlee shot me. <laughs> he saved you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's pretty much all the major characters. Should we uh, get into this sucker? We've we, got we, prob- a <laughs> we probably should. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, the pre-title sequence, we are in Minsk. How do you even pronounce that? Minsk. Minsk, Belarus. However, it's hard to know that you're in Minsk, Belarus, because... <laughs> The titling is so small. It's so appropriately sized. I mean, if you're not looking up at the top of the screen in the clear blue sky, you might miss it. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't fill the whole screen, so, a la Russo Brothers. If you missed it, don't feel bad. That's right. That's, what That's right. So, yeah, we're in Minsk, Belarus, and... Uh, the- this movie starts out it's kind of interesting though the more i think about the beginning of this movie it's almost like the octopusy pre-title sequence because it barely has relevance to the rest of the movie sure it's, it's like, almost like well, it's it's one of those self-contained pre-title sequences that almost is just we wanted to do this thing and this is this is the only way that we're going to be able to deliver it to you right <laughs> Well, that that totally was totally my first impression. It's like this literally has nothing to do with other than hanging Tom Cruise off of an airplane, right? Because you could have got to the fact that the gas or whatever that that was being shipped, you didn't have to have all this elaborate. This was it was just a vehicle, so Tom could hang from the side of a plane. And I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it's great. <laughs> most Bond movies are kind of known for that kind of big stunt right at the beginning, right? Right, so. They're just sort of following hand in hand with that. And I mean, it did have some relevance. Brant ties back the little exploit to what's happening, but it's not gender main to the main plot. Right, right. And you brought that up too, uh, that this does feel like the most Bondian of all the Mission Impossible movies. You've got a lot of sexy, sexy moments, a lot of flirty, flirty, Rebecca Ferguson, just gorgeous all over the place. And a lot of good chemistry between Cruz and Ferguson. Sure. And it just, and, and then just all the set pieces and everything. And it, just, and even pacing wise, this feels like the most Bond movie. Absolutely. That the Mission franchise has ever done. But I digress. Um, we jump right into the middle of hijinks. We, we see this grassy field. Benji, Benji. <laughs> right. And then it pops up with a ghillie suit. <laughs> right. He's in a ghillie suit. No sniper rifle. <laughs> nope. Just a... Just, just a laptop. Just a laptop, because that's Benji. Uh, <laughs> and Brant's asking over the comm where Ethan is. And then suddenly Luther enters the conversation, and he's helping <laughs> Benji disable the plane. Well, and he's not even supposed to be there that day, right? Right. Well, isn't he like halfway around the world or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. He's like, he's Benji a- called me in to help him out. <laughs> right. What do you got to do? I got to hack into a Russian satellite. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I can't authorize that. That's why I'm not asking. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I honestly, when I, I, again, I don't watch these very often, so I thought that might have been his only appearance in the movie. Right. Because given this history, he's in and he's out. 
Right, he's in for five minutes. So and maybe then he's you don't having see a him. beer at the end of the at the end of the <laughs> film, but that's it. Right. Um, thank God he wasn't. But even if he had, it still was a good scene. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then of course Brant's all you know up in arms about it because he's, he mentions that the IMF is under investigation for misconduct. A little bit of exposition slipped in sure, there. Sure, 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 sure. Um, and then despite the fact that. Benji is trying to disable this plane from moving, it starts moving. And <laughs> sort of continuing that tech that doesn't work sort of thing from uh, Ghost Protocol. And then, of course, suddenly Ethan just starts running. He's like, can you open the door or whatever? And, and they're like, whoa, whoa, it's Ethan. And suddenly Ethan's right. running. And then <laughs> jumps onto the wing of the airplane off of a hill as it's flying. Just at the exact moment that the wing is right next to the hill. Uh, Ethan Hunt is the luckiest man in the world. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Pretty much. So Ethan's wondering if Benji can open the door. So he's on top of the wing. Oh, fun fact. The gray suit that is worn during the opening plane sequence is a direct homage to the plane sequence in North by Northwest, where uh, Roger Thornhill wears a similarly colored suit. And I love this when you hear Tom Cruise over the comp. I'm not in the plane. I'm on the plane. Open the door. <laughs> <laughs> Benji's like, oh. And then, uh, you know, they they don't get the uh, the plane to stop, and they don't get the door to open, and now Tom Cruise is hanging from the side of this plane. And... You know, I watched last night, actually, I watched the making of this scene. And it's just like of all of the things that he's done, this is the one stunt that feels the most dangerous. Like, yes. like this is this one feels far more as spectacular as the Burj Khalifa was. Yeah, he was hanging on wires. He was hanging on wires. It didn't feel nearly as fucking dangerous. Wow. First of all, he's got these contact lenses that cover his entire eyes. He right. can't see through them because they're there to protect his eyes in case something like flies up and right. and hits him. And it's helping to so that he can actually keep his eyes open right. while he's flying through the air at, what, 5,000? I don't know how far, how fast they well, go. Well, not 5,000. Not 5,000, but he's going very fast. Absolutely. So <laughs> it, it's so... I'm just like, how did they get away with this? And then... You know, watching the the behind the scenes too, I was so shocked that they don't find a way to get him into the plane while they're airborne once they're done with the shot. He has to just stay there while they land. Like, that's insane to me. Yeah. And they barely even touch on it in the making of. And I'm like, that seems pretty important to me. <laughs> and yet, it's Tom Cruise. Is it really? <laughs> Look, Tom Cruise did another extraordinarily stupid thing for his movie. <laughs> right. And, success, and was successful at it. Yeah. Ho-hum, big <laughs> surprise. Right. I just, the, the logistics of this whole scene, not just for Cruise, but like they had to construct a special rig so that the camera didn't bounce from the turbulence from the wind and, and so the, the propellers. And, and then they had to make sure that that rig didn't offset the plane so much that the plane couldn't, couldn't fly. fly. Yeah, exactly. There was so much engineering that was done just into getting the shot that, again, you have to wonder why anybody would want to make that shot for the <laughs> amount of money it cost, and yet they did it. Well, I kind of think that that's now the ongoing thread with Mission Impossible is Cruz and McQuarrie have a thing that they really want to do. Then they try doing it. They do it, but then they realize how hard and what a pain in the ass it is. And then they never do it again. No. Because <laughs> there's already been interviews with them about Dead Reckoning talking about how they never want to work on a fucking train again. 
Right. Like, because the, they've had so many issues with the train. Crashing that train off the off the ledge or right. uh, the cliff. Well, and then there's, a, there's another uh, behind the scenes story about this plane thing where Cruz thought he had actually like broken a bone or something because some tiny little rock. Yeah, tiny pebble. He thought he'd got it got embedded into him. And when he got done shooting, he thought he was going to see this huge amount of damage. Right. And it was just like a small bruise. Yeah. Like it never penetrated the shirt. Right. But it hit him at, you know, a third the speed of a bullet. Yeah. It's <laughs> just bonkers. Yeah. So back to the show. And <laughs> and Benji's doing everything he can on his laptop and he finally he's trying to open the door and instead he opens the bay door. And right. of course, which doesn't do any good, but so then he finally opens the side door. And this little moment is a little weird. And I don't know, you know, I'm not a physics expert, but <laughs> I think we've shown time and time again on this show that uh, w- neither one of us are experts on a lot of things. Um, <laughs> nor do we play them on TV. Nor do we play them on TV. But Ethan gets sucked into the plane and then flies out towards the back hatch and slams into the side of the airplane, like inside of the airplane. Yeah, I, that was questionable to me because it, the cabin would have the, the entire cargo area should have been depressurized when the the lift the, the gate went down at the back. Yeah, so um, wouldn't he have just kind of rolled in? That's what I think. Yeah, but again, as you pointed out, I'm, I'm not an aerodynamics <laughs> engineer, but there shouldn't have been any differential in pressure from the inside and the outside of the plane with the back of the plane opened up. So right. yeah, he should have literally had to crawl himself in. I'm gonna guess it was a logistics thing. You mean as far as like the scene, as so, far as yeah, getting so, him to that side yeah, of the, but how he was rigged on the outside, maybe couldn't. You couldn't move that rigging to get him inside yeah. of a crawl. Well, and the other thing is, is you probably couldn't realistically get a shot where he's crawling in and it looked real. Yes. So that's kind of what yeah, it's kind of what I'm saying. And I yeah. I'm assuming that they filmed the interior of the plane on that plane. Yeah. So you so had that, to have a way to get him in that didn't involve complicated wires that were holding him. Right. Or outside. or or a bad green screen shot. Right, right. Which you know, I appreciate. I'll, I will take a a lapse in physics in the interest of not having to see bad CGI. Yes. So Tom's inside the plane now. He's, you know... After slamming up against the side of the yes, wall. Extremely rattled. And then, you know, he sees the big pallet of, of nerve gas or whatever it is. I forget. Yes, it's VX nerve gas. Uh, and then this guard comes out. <laughs> To see what's going on. And Tom has now strapped himself to the... Well, they show him working his arms into the straps of this pallet with the nerve gas right. on it. And he's kind of like, hee <laughs> Yeah. And he's and then there's the ripcord for the nerve gas. And he's like, uh... He just sort of shrugs, <laughs> yeah, exactly. pulls the ripcord, and boom. And right. we're gone. And that's it. And that's, that's a very quick... Pre-title, but I mean, it, it sort of makes sense because the the stunt is so ridiculous. That right? What are you gonna do? You're not. If it had been a Roger Moore movie, you would have seen Roger coming down with a British parachute, the, right. with a Union Jack on the right. thing. You know, hello, a, a filler up, please type of yeah. moment. He would he would have landed on with the package, gotten off, dusted himself, and and walked over to the nearest bar to get a martini. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we're into the title graphics. Which are also super quick. Which are also fast, fast, fast. They have this interesting flickering effect where they have the name of the movie scrolling horizontally in black like a Photoshop overlay to give this like flickery vibe while they're this hypercut. And it's very much like 
they they went away from I was really happy with the way that they did titling in Ghost Protocol because it wasn't this like hypercut thing. This is coming back to that somewhat. More but it's of a the little, TV type of more of the TV thing, but it's a little bit more managed, I think. I think it's yeah. I think it's better done and it's not quite so it's energetic, but not frenetic. Seiz- it's not seizure inducing. That, that's fair. <laughs> well, and it, it's almost, it's like a little, not so much a pause after the intense action you just watched. Right. But it, it also keeps you elevated. Yes. When you jump into the next portion of the film. Right. And they do sort of reintroduce that fuse that sort of intercut in between the different scenes that they're showing off. And the way that they do it almost helps to sort of take you away from that hypercut so that you're not, you know, just losing your mind as you're seeing all these different images flashing by. They sort of strategically use the the fuse shot to hold on that for just a second while you catch your breath. Again, pacing in this movie is thought about at every level. Yes. So, so then we're back into, you know, very quickly, we're right back into the action. And uh, I love this first scene, mainly just because I collect records. And so... <laughs> Ethan Hunt walks into a record store in London, England, and uh, this sort of harkens back to actually one of the very first ways to receive a mission in the original TV series, by the way. Right, via an LP. Right. Which was the pinnacle of technology when the original show was out. Yes. We get this uh, fun exchange between the girl quote-unquote working there. Is it really you? I've heard stories. Now, could you imagine, though? I mean, she's she's an IMF agent, right? Right. That's her day job is working at a record store. It's almost like the perfect job for Ben. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? Well, I'm a spy technically, but I run this record store. And yeah. every so often other spies come in and I have special records it's for them. It's literally my dream job. Right. It's, li- right. it's like, <laughs> I want to be that beautiful girl. Can't I be that? <laughs> I mean, it, I mean... It, it would make the dynamic on this podcast a little different. <laughs> <laughs> but also, it would also make it more difficult for me to read my notes. Right. Um, if if so, I look like her, you'd probably have a hard time concentrating. I would just be like, uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, so we get this fun exchange, you know, is it really you? Because, you know, it's Ethan friggin' Hunt. Right. And he just sort of, sort of gives her this wry smile. Like, <laughs> right. Yes. Well, and, you know, they're using the, the, the password trope. Right. Yeah, where they're with the, where the they're, lengthy passphrase trope. Right about jazz or so and so didn't play drums. They played this or or right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and, and it it's fun because normally those things are kind of like you know, oh, it looks like it may rain, but you seem to have forgotten your umbrella. Yes, but I don't often use an umbrella <laughs> because umbrellas are dumb. Yes, they are quite dumb. This one was kind of you know. Yeah. Hey. Hey. Yeah, you know. I'm in a, hip and cool I'm in a record and... store. We're talking about music. Right. Exactly. She even throws out the same thing that all record store people are like, oh, but you know this guy was great on the drums. Actually, he didn't play the blah 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 blah. Right. Blah. Right. You and get into that whole thing. Right. So it's like so it sounds like an actual conversation. Yeah. Which has less effect considering there's nobody in the record store except except Lane except for Lane who's listening. To music in one of the booths. What was Lane listening to, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Probably. I don't. He was listening to the James Bond theme song. Well, I was thinking he was listening to just some bad rock, like a. Uh, uh, <laughs> listening like, to Coldplay. <laughs> Coldplay. Nickelback. Wow. Nick, that's what I was thinking. That's exactly who I was thinking. He's listening to Nickelback. <laughs> The jerk. <laughs> anyway. Maroon 5. 
Sorry, Nickelback fans. He looks like uh, a Maroon 5 guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he gets the record from the girl and he goes into the listening booth. And, uh, you know, I was looking at facts on IMDb about this and they totally get the, the wrong turntable on IMDb. They said it was an Audio-Technica. No, it's a Techniques 1200. It's, Nerd! <laughs> I'm just saying. Sorry, what was that? It's, it's, the, it's the industry standard. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, <laughs> the mission. So he puts the record down, and of course, you know, the, the control arm is is all tricked out and projects the, the mission or whatnot on the back of the thing. And the mission is the weapons you recovered in Belarus were confirmed to be VX nerve gas capable of devastating a major city. The bodies of the air crew were found less than 24 hours after they landed in Damascus. They were identified as low-level Chechen separatists with neither the access nor the ability to acquire the weapons they were transporting. So, um, <laughs> so it basically says, Ethan, you're right. Right. The message goes on to say that uh, this all supports Ethan's theory about the syndicate. But then the message takes a turn and says, normally you'd be tasked with blah, blah, blah. But we've taken steps to stop you because we are the syndicate. Right. And, then Ethan, and it's the same guy who did the voice stuff from the last movie, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And I think maybe the guy who does the voice for all of them. I, I'm not going to go back and listen to all of them. <laughs> but this should have been Lane. It should have been Lane. It would have been like much. Like he tapped in in the room he was in and he was doing it i think that or at been, least that part i think that would have been awesome if they did that right if it had just been the regular mission and he like intercepted it and so mr lay or mr <laughs> hunt blah, blah 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 i can't even do his voice i really tried while i was watching it today i thought i could impress everybody with it but he just I, he talks like he this and it's very hard to not sound like something else <laughs> It's almost like he can't get the words out when he's talking. Like Marlon Brando on helium or something. So he he tries to get out of the booth or he, he stands up and he looks out the window and there's Lane standing behind the record store girl with a gun to her head. Right. And then gas starts filling the listening booth and Lane shoots the girl in cold just... Cold, cold blood, like right, and quite as unmessily, because there's no way that a point blank bullet shot to the head wasn't going to blow the front of her face off. Right, but, it would have obliterated. But okay, her head, it was a but, pretty face. I wouldn't want to ruin that either. Still, right. so yeah, he kills the girl, and then the smoke, the room fills up with smoke, and finally Ethan blacks out. <laughs> With the the ultimate horror scene with the hand, <laughs> yeah, the hand sliding sliding down. down. <laughs> <laughs> then we cut to the CIA. Well, not really the CIA. It's a Senate hearing, and CIA Director Alec Baldwin or Alan Hunley <laughs> is uh, speaking to the Senate about the carelessness of the IMF, blaming them for the original infiltration of that you see in the very first Mission Impossible movie, which. Is this new thing that they're now carrying on ever since Rogue Nation, and then they're certainly bringing it back in Dead Reckoning with with bringing back uh, Kittredge, right? Um, but this is sort of the the genesis of this, where Hunley is referencing things that happened in one, in two, and oh, three, which all all the things that happened. So you remember when we did Ghost Protocol? Mm-hmm. I was like. I wonder if they'll reference the Transamerica Tower having a giant hole in it. And, and Moscow. It, and Kremlin being wiped out. And when they came on, I'm like, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, they were smart enough to yeah. to do their homework like that. You know, showing all these things where you know there's all this collateral damage in the form of the Kremlin being leveled and right. a chunk being taken out of the uh, Trans America building. Yeah, exactly. And then he goes on to say that the IMF is now a rogue organization. Hmm. Rogue. Rogue. I'm seeing a trend here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Senate argues that the IMF's results look more like luck than anything. And so they agree with Hunley and they decide to shut the program down, at least for now. <laughs> and you get to have, during this scene, you get to have... Brant. So during the scene, you get to see Brant put on the whole, uh, I can neither confirm nor yes. deny. And it's this little tete-a-tete between him and Hunley. Right. right. Hunley says something, I cannot do this. And he says, I, I can neither confirm nor deny. Da, da, da. And they're just, they're going at it verbally. Right. And I love, too, that they establish it here and then they bring it all the way back at the very end to do the same gag with right. I cannot confirm or deny it da, 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 without the approval right. of the secretary. And yet it's so much more, it's more genial and sort of elbow-y. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see what yeah. I did there? Because, because they've converted Hundley by the end. Right. So then we cut to uh, Tom Cruise waking up and his hands are tied to some sort of pole. And good God, Tom Cruise was 53 when they made this movie and he looks spectacular uh, i look like, equally as good at 53 <laughs> with the do. lights off uh, <laughs> and like sunglasses i'm on. just i'm just like i haven't ever looked that good physically <laughs> like even at 27 i didn't look that good he's 53 in this movie and he's just ridiculously physically just cut and Good grief. Well, yeah. And, you know, this is after Jack Reacher, right? I think it's Jack Reacher was the year before or two years before that. I believe so, yeah. Um, And he got in ripped shape for that movie. Yeah. Because the Jack Reacher character is supposed to be... Really, really really, ripped. And also really, really tall. We can only (laughs) do so many things with movie magic. But I feel like that movie, he got to that level and kind of stayed there for a while. Right. Right, sort of like Henry Cavill did after Superman. He he had to get back into Superman shape when he put on the cape, but he like he liked how he looked afterwards, right? And continued the regimen of staying sort of large. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, Cruz is is in that mode as well during this entire movie. It's it's really impressive. But you know, given the fact that he you know is part cyborg, I you know it's it's a little less impressive. But anyway, well, you know. Um, <laughs> He still has to put some effort into the the human portion right. of the robot. Sure, of course. Uh, so anyway, Ethan's waking up and he's handcuffed to this pole in this dark, dingy place. And in comes Ilsa with uh, needles and what looks to be probably truth serum. Yes. And then we see a rabbit's foot, har har, with a key to the uh, handcuffs laid out. And then I love this little moment where... Ilsa unbuttons a button or two on her shirt right. at, to be more persuasive, perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, <laughs> before turning around and looking at sizing up Hunt. And it's just like, well, okay, we know what we're doing here. Right. <laughs> We've done an interrogation or two before. Sure. Sometimes force isn't always the uh, 
the best approach. Well, then uh, don't forget, she takes her shoes off as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> and they are really nice shoes. Yes. <laughs> even So nice, even Hunt, Hunt even has to Hunt note comments on them. How nice those shoes are. Right. And then uh, in comes uh, Victor the Bone Doctor. Uh, just when she's about to sort of start her inquiry, Victor shows up and some Elaine's guys just sort of barge in. And right. he wants to get going and he like, Takes a few uh, cheap shots at Ethan while he's strapped up or whatnot. And that's also when Ethan sort of sizes him up as well. And we get to find out that he was declared dead three years ago. And it's like, we're starting to get some of this information that we're going to have to sort of put together as far as, oh, so the syndicate is comprised of all these people who are presumed dead, yada, yada, yada. Then we see Ilsa, she sort of palms the, uh, the rabbit's foot and then she sort of turns it and raises an eyebrow and shows him like, I'm going to let you out, but we're going to figure out a way out of this. Right, so, right. Yeah. So we see like Victor unwrapping his bag of tricks and he's got like all these like bone saws and picks and mm-hmm. torture devices and what have you. And But then he comes, he gets really close to Ethan and that's when they sort of make their move where Ethan... Uh, sort of pulls up his legs and kicks him or I think that's what it is. Yeah, yeah he pulls up his legs and he and he kicks Victor and sends him all the way across the f- the floor and he essentially knocks him out again cuz he hits his head on this giant pipe behind him and then that's when this this whole fight breaks out where Ilsa starts fighting all these guys and just is yeah. kicking ass and right. after throwing the key seed and so he can unlock him right exactly and and we get this this is very sort of the precursor to the way that Black Widow fights sure where lots of leg stuff well I wouldn't say it's a precursor she was already doing it before this movie but well yeah a similar style yeah when was the first Iron Man two Iron Man two and that was before two thousand. 11, I think. Okay, so it was before 2015. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, maybe it was Black Widow inspired. So, well, it, so one thing that I thought was interesting because she does do this, you know, spinny, get around the neck, knock you down. Right. They kind of, I won't say they developed it for Scarlett Johansson because of her size. Right. But it's a key factor in how she fights because she's so small, she has to throw out their center of gravity to do it. Scarlett Johansson's like five foot tall. Right. Whereas. Right? Rebecca Ferguson is 5'8". Right. Right. She had the hunch in most of her scenes with Tom, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so for me, I wonder how the dynamics work with somebody who is much taller with the physics of that being effective. Because I don't, there probably isn't a whole lot of extra mass between the two of them. Well, I think, but- it's, I think it's easier for her to... Because she is taller, she's able to get uh, use her weight, the what weight she does have, up and above faster and easier, and able to sort of apply pressure much more effectively. I think. Yeah, I I guess I just I've never really seen this used with tall people, tall I, women before. <laughs> I feel like I feel like when Black Widow does it, it's more about inertia. Yes. Whereas with yeah, with her, it was really more about controlling and getting it into the position where she could then use what mass she had to to pull the person exactly. down rather than using the speed of it to direct where the body was. And quite honestly, I would just sort of be like, thighs. Uh. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, 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 get me wrong. I, just, I think traditionally when you see women of her stature, 
in fight scenes with men, right. it's usually the kicky, kicky, punchy, punchy stuff. Like, right. you know, your Charlize Theron's of the world. Yes. And this one actually showed her employing a technique that because she doesn't weigh as much as these other guys would be more effective than kicky, kicky, punchy, punchy. Right. She's so nimble. and Yeah. But she's got the extra leg length to sort of really wrap. Right. And that comes into play in the fight at the end, too. Yeah. Very much so. So, and, and then there's this moment where she's sort of in trouble in the fight. And again, Tom Cruise, 53 years old, does that crazy thing where he uses his legs to shimmy his way up this pole. That is insane. It looks legit. I mean, I'm pretty sure he just fucking did that. Like he was just able to do that at 53 years old. Sure. Get over the pole that he was on and then drop down on his feet and start getting into the scrum. Right. And he's doing jump drop kicks and... (laughs) Well, and you know... The reason he has to do this is because even though he's got the key to the lock, right. he can't get his hand close <laughs> enough to turn the right. lock. Because there's just enough space. Right. Or Because the cuffs are kind of wide. Right. Which doesn't allow him to completely move his exactly. wrist freely. They're hinged more than they are on a chain. Right. There's no real bracelet to it. And I, I also need to point out, Rebecca Ferguson's getting her ass kicked in this fight. Yeah. She's giving as good as she's getting, but she's still getting a lot. Which is nice to see that they're not pulling punches. They're not, you know, she is playing nice with her. Every step of the way in this movie, she is the equal to Ethan Hunt. Absolutely. And that's why it works so well. That's yes, why exactly. it works so well. And that's why I still think that she should take over the franchise after eight. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. So eventually, obviously, they they knock out all the guys or they kill most of them. They knock out Victor. And then uh, Ilsa shows Ethan this way out through this tunnel with a gate, but stays behind, quickly explaining to him that what she's going to tell Lane, that he was the one that killed the guys and knocked out Victor and escaped from her. And then he made a break for it. And then she's like, go, go. And then Victor wakes back up and more guys come in and they're, and she yells at them to go after him to sell the whole thing. And right. then, of course, you know, Ethan's like, whoa, whoa, and he oh, runs. Okay, I'm leaving, bye. <laughs> okay, I'm leaving, bye. <laughs> I don't have my CO2 laser. I can't cut through the gate you closed over here. <laughs> so then Ethan winds up in this phone booth talking to Brant, saying that London's been compromised and that they didn't kill him, but they easily could have. And he also said he knows what Lane looks like, or he looks like this mystery man. Right. Um, but he doesn't know who he is. And he's trying to like dump all this information off on Brandt. But Brandt is just outside of this Senate hearing. And he's like, well, I can't really talk right yeah, now. My wife's here, man. I can't really talk right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, Ethan's trying to tell him about how the syndicate is using presumed dead agents. And then Brandt quickly, you know, lets him know that the Senate just shut down the IMF. Brant asks if he can find this mystery guy. And then we get this a little over-the-top line from uh, Hunt saying, I won't stop until I do, or something. <laughs> it's on brand for Ethan, though. Yeah, very much so. And then as the uh, phone call ends, we see blood on Ethan's hands. And I'm like, did he get shot? Because they never reference it after this. His hand comes off of, off of his stomach area, and he's got blood on his hand. I'm like, 
Did he get shot somehow? Or? I didn't even notice that. Like, but they never reference it the rest of the way. Maybe so, just blood from punching people in the face, or something like that. Who knows? Um, blood sacrifice. <laughs> anyway. Maybe it was paint from the phone booth. <laughs> it it just freshly painted. Sure, <laughs> they're red out there, yeah, right? Well, indeed. Well, unless they're time travel timey wimey ones. The timey wimey ones that are much bigger on the inside, right? But I don't uh, think that was the case here. <laughs> I just think it's funny that there's still phone booths in 2015 in London. <laughs> there was one. <laughs> there was one. <laughs> just the one. <laughs> Just the one that's the tourists take the pictures at. So, so then we're we're back at the CIA and Brant is talking with Hunley, who wants to know where Hunt is, but Brant, of course, doesn't know. Hunley then basically outright accuses the IMF or Hunt specifically as fabricating the existence of the syndicate. <laughs> Uh, simply because uh, the CIA haven't been able to find any trace of them. Right. I love uh, that part. Let's cut the bone. You know who we are. You know what we're capable of. How come the CIA has never discovered any actionable intel regarding this uh, syndicate? What are you implying? Not implying, stating, leveling an accusation, actually. Hunt is both arsonist and fireman at the same time. I believe that the syndicate is a figment of his imagination created to justify the IMF's existence. I'm going to find him, Brand, and when I do, he will be called upon to answer for every wanton act of mayhem he is responsible for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Hunley then basically says that Hunt is living his last days as a free man and that the hunt is on for Hunt. But Brandt, of course, is sure that they'll never find him, which, you know, <laughs> sort of is proof. Yeah, when because six months later. Six months later, we uh, cut to a very bearded Ethan Hunt doing yeah. push-ups in a in a room, which we think at the time is in Havana, Cuba. Right. So we think he's in Havana, Cuba doing push-ups and there's all these pictures on the wall, all these suspects and trying to put five and five together about the syndicate and what have you. Uh, and then we see Hunley at Langley ordering the start of this operation to capture Hunt. And it's kind of in that area. It's very born identity, this room that well, he's in. Well, did you catch... The, the comm signal, Langley, um, wasn't Treadstone, but it was like Bridgestone or something like <laughs> right, that. Right, very similar. And I, ca- I totally caught that going yeah. in. Like, that has to be a dig at the Jason Bourne movies. Right. Very, very Bourne Identity-esque, that room that he's in. And, yes. And, and everything about this this moment as he's about to order these guys to infiltrate this, this safe house or whatnot. Right. And did you notice that... To a man, every one of those CA operatives is wearing a brightly colored polo shirt underneath his bulletproof vest. One was pink, one was blue, one was yellow. They're like, we're in Havana, baby. <laughs> it's undercover. Yeah, we're undercover in Havana. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> so, and then obviously, this is sort of one of those, they're digging in the wrong place type More moments. Uh, kind of uh, a la... Black Widow, actually, um, yes. where, uh, you know, it turns out that Hunt is actually in Paris. Uh, and, and how do we know he's in Paris, Ben? Uh, they Did you just, know that every apartment in, every, in Paris every, has a view of the Eiffel Tower? <laughs> every apartment, every hotel room, everything in, in Paris has a view of the Eiffel Tower. It, it doesn't matter if it's 12 miles away from the Eiffel Tower and you at sea level. See you will I- see the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> in no from, way will it be obscured by anything. 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 They have... Built that entire city so everyone has the best seats in the house. Exactly. To see the Eiffel Tower. Exactly. It's just like no matter where you are in Washington, D.C. You can see see the Washington Monument or the White House. That's right. It just doesn't matter. (laughs) So the CIA 
barges into the safe house that was in Havana, Cuba. Right. And, you know, Ethan's left all of his calling cards there on purpose. On purpose. On purpose so that they can see this is his proof that a syndicate exists. And uh, meanwhile, Ethan's watching all this on a little screen in his little safe house in Paris. It's just all the mug shots and all that sort of stuff. As well as uh, drawings of both Lane and Ilsa. So that all obviously gets transferred to the CIA, and that's when Hunley sees it, and he's all Rah. so. Well, do you which, think this firmly establishes that the drawing that that Ethan does on his hand was a really good drawing, considering how good those drawings were from memory? Oh yeah, yeah. Of, of Ilsa and and Lane. Yeah. So so that the one that he shows that was clearly a good drawing. Yeah. We were we were wondering how good the quality of the Despite drawing was. Despite it being crude, right, right, right. according well, to Brandt. Because, you know. Because <laughs> Brandt, everybody's almost, a critic. <laughs> I, almost, I almost wish there'd been a little throwaway line when he's in there with Luther with the drawings going, you know, these are actually much better than drawings I've seen Ethan do before. Not as crude or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Right? That would have been a great little callback. <laughs> so, of course, that means now we cut to Benji. Who is playing Halo? <laughs> yeah! I love that he's just playing. He's so bored. So bored. Because he's, st- he's got no work. Yeah, he's stuck at a desk doing nothing. So he's playing Halo 4. On, on he, he's playing, Actually, I think he's playing Halo 5. But he's playing Halo on three screens <laughs> at a 45-degree angle. So he's got the full pan-in gamer look on it. It's fantastic. <laughs> And I'm glad you knew that, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) No, as soon as I saw it, I'm like, that's a BR-75. (laughs) Is Benji playing Halo? He's playing He's playing Halo right up until he sees somebody in his rear view camera right, walking right. towards him. He quickly flips it back to something, CIA just, stuff. Just to his desktop screen. Right. And, of course, the the guy walking up to him was just a mail guy. But anyway, so he drops off an envelope along with some other mail or whatever. And the envelope has uh, tickets to Vienna. It's like, you're a winner. Like he, like he somehow won tickets to the opera in Vienna. Right. So like you do, like you do, I mean, I get those at least twice a year, but I never, <laughs> I don't want to fly to Vienna, even though the tickets are free. I just assume it's a scam. Well, so. pretty much. They're going to get me to do a timeshare or something in yeah, Vienna. Exactly. Really? You're going to have to go to some seminar. I mean, the pastries are good. <laughs> the coffee's terrible. The coffee's terrible. And you know what? Opera houses are fine, but you have to listen to opera in an opera house. Yeah. And who wants to do that? Not for the full duration. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> Only the parts where people are getting shot at. That's right. So, <laughs> but just then, as he's discovering that he's a winner, he call, he gets called in for his weekly uh, polygraph interrogation, which apparently is just a you know weekly thing now for him. Well, sure. Courtesy of Ethan Hunt. So... He's in there and Hunley comes in and drops down the big pile of photos on the table from the failed bust and accuses Benji of helping Hunt obtain all this information. But of course, no lies show up on the detector. Because Benji is a stone-cold, steely-eyed missile man. That's right, because he has has evolved since Ghost Protocol into a fully-fledged Jedi. That's right, who can just control his heartbeat and and do what he needs to do when he needs to do it. Damn, Skippy, someday, Badass. Benji, you're going to get that mask. That's right. He, someday. Maybe maybe in some movie called Fallout. But anyway. Maybe. Um, so, yeah. Uh, no lies show up on the lie detector. 
And Benji actually tries to vilify Ethan to Hunley, like, well, now I'm sitting at a desk and now I have to have these weekly polygraph tests. And and meanwhile, he's still out there with blah, 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 blah. So, and that seems to sort of appease Hunley for the moment. And then after a bit of sort of frustration over all that, Benji's basically like, fuck it, I'm going to Vienna. Yeah, I got a vacation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess I'll go do this. So... Now we go to Vienna and I, this, I mean, this is the scene for me. Sure. Like I do love the car chase. The car chase is unbelievable, but right next to the car chase for me is, is this opera scene. It's just, it's so well done. The music is choreographed with the action. Right. Ilsa looks fantastic. Definitely. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's just all, it's just perfect for me. This, this whole sequence is so great it's, it's got so much good stuff in it it does you know it's funny when i watched it the second time i started thinking of this could have been a scene that wouldn't have been out of place in the first mission impossible with the palma directing it yes except very it would much have been so. less action oriented and more suspense oriented yeah a lot um, more dutch angles too <laughs> yes but you had three shooters you didn't know what was actually happening. And it's it's definitely a scene that leads itself to a suspense angle that Ricori clearly wasn't looking for. Right. But it would have played so well with De Palma's directing style as well. Yeah. I kind of wanted to have that Hitchcockian feel of what was actually going to happen. Yeah, you really could have taken it there with this. But this movie would have actually bogged it down to go that route. I think so. There was definitely a pace they were trying to maintain even in the quieter scenes. Right. And this one is probably the longest scene where there's no real action. Yeah. There's just a lot of sneaky, sneaky stuff right. going on. Right. And it really, the only action gets the fight scene. Yeah. Which is fucking hilarious with the <laughs> yeah, rigging with the going up and down. Yeah. <laughs> So then we see Benji, and he's getting off the train or tube, Euro rail, in his natty tuxedo. Yeah, and it's very looking very sharp in his tuxedo. And uh, of course, some random guy just like hands him a package. And was that guy wearing the Ghost Protocol jacket? Oh, he might have been. He might have been wearing the hood. It looked like it was a leather jacket with a knit hood. Kind of looked like the Ghost Protocol jacket. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a good looking jacket. Maybe maybe Tom traded the jacket for that guy to give (laughs) the thing to Benji. It's like, tell you what. If, if you if you deliver, if you deliver this, this package, you can the have guy. my super cool jacket that okay. I lifted while I was. That's in. right. There's a guy getting off the train. He's going to look a lot like that guy from Shaun of the Dead, but he's not the same guy. <laughs> it's not but he looks same. like him. He's going to be wearing a tux. Just give him this envelope, and you can have this really cool jacket that I stole from somebody in Russia. So the guy hands him the package, and he opens it up, and inside is a quote-unquote program. Right, right. And then some fancy glasses. Right. And he puts on the glasses, and of course, on the screen of the glasses, it says, you know, Benji done confirmed or whatever. Right. And uh, then we hear, hello, Benji. And of course, it's Ethan. And uh, Ethan, oh my God, blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> so Ethan sends Benji the sketch of Lane, which of course is dead bang on for what Lane looks like. Um, <laughs> and... He basically says that's who they're trying to find the identity of. And Ethan believes that he's going to be at this opera tonight. He's the key to the syndicate. And, you know, Benji, I don't even think knows anything about the syndicate whatsoever at this point. He, so Benji's role is basically to try and find him by hacking into the closed caption TVs of the opera house um, so that Ethan can then track him down. And then Benji's supposed to just fly home and no one's the wiser. However, things go awry. 
Don't they always? <laughs> so, so I do like how they don't uh, bother to explain to you why Ethan thinks he's going to be there in the first place. Yeah, never. No, there's even, when they, even when they get to that boat and he's kind of saying, here's what this happened, here's what this happened. There's no dots there's, that lead you to Austria. There's a couple moments in this movie like that. And you just have to kind of... I feel like they may have been there and they cut it down for time. Probably. Because at the end of the day, you don't really need to know why Ethan thought he was there because it's not gender main to the rest of the plot. Right. And it gets explained in that next scene why he's chasing random events. Right. But I remember thinking, how did he know he was going to... Why does he think he's going to be there? Right. But did it's he just, Ethan Did he Hunt? just watch Casino Royale and yeah. said, you know what? Or no, Quantum of Solace. And he went, you know what? A lot of bad guys hang out... At the at, opera. At, at, in, in Austria. So... <laughs> I'm going to try that and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. But it's Ethan Hunt. You give him the benefit of the you doubt. Give him the benefit of the, and he's done all his homework over the last six months. He knows. He knows. I mean, he just said, you know, he's going to do it earlier on. So. That's right. He's going to do everything he can. So, <laughs> oh, look, it's the Chancellor of Austria and his wife <laughs> right. attending. With his Klingon sash. Right. <laughs> right. So Benji's like, oh, my God, it's the Chancellor of Austria. Did you know he was going to be there? Ethan's like, no, I didn't. Oh, I guess we know why your guy's going to be here. <laughs> right, exactly. And then Benji starts rambling nervously about, you know, this, that, and the other, all of his worries about this whole thing, what's going to happen, and da-da-da-da-da. And, and Ethan's just trying to, like, chill, just go do the thing that you do. Nice tux, by the way. Right. And <laughs> I like that little quick turn that Benji tries to see him, and Ethan sort of quickly behind one of the pillars right. from up above because he was looking in the right direction for him. Sure. So, And then, of course, we see a rather suspicious-looking tall blonde man. Isn't it always? <laughs> I think assassins are supposed to be blonde if they're dudes. That might be all the way back to uh, to Robert Shaw yeah. in, in uh, from, from Russia, Russia with, with Love. love. Yeah. yeah. So this tall blonde man is making his way through security with... Uh, I, I'm not an expert on woodwinds. A piccolo, maybe? I, it, it, Something like it that. It wasn't an oboe. I, not an oboe. So I'm going to say probably piccolo. Okay. It was a really long flute. Yes. So, Any musical people out there of our <laughs> yeah. Ted's of listeners, if you know what that instrument is, let us know. Yes, indeed. Then another large blonde man. They just come out of a factory, these large blonde men who kill people for well, a living. Sure. Anyway, so this other large blonde man who's a security guard who also looks rather dubious. And Lundgren-y. Lundgreny, very Lundgreny. Very Dolph Lundgreny, and then <laughs> hits an Arnie factor when he throws his sunglasses on for no apparent reason. <laughs> right. So he's making his way somewhere as well in a rather suspicious sort of way. Meanwhile, Benji makes his way to the server slash maintenance room, and he uses his fancy IMF key that he must have held on to after the IMF was dissolved. It's just, well, I'll just keep holding on to this. We might need this later. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> he gets in there and he puts this little bug on some sort of server thing. And then the other corresponding little bug goes into this fancy thing that looks like an opera program, but is actually a laptop. Right. Very fancy. That was, that was one of the pieces of tech I thought was kind of fun. I dig that. And reasonably attainable reasonably, in 2015. Indeed. Indeed. It wouldn't have been cheap, but the technology was there. Indeed. So... Now he's got, not control, but just he's able to monitor. Yeah, he's got access to He's them. got access to him so he can watch everything that's going on all over this facility. And uh, <laughs> and then we get my favorite line, maybe of the entire Mission Impossible movie franchise. Join the IMF. See the world on a monitor in a closet. 
it's the IMF equivalency of, you know, I wanted to travel to beautiful South Vietnam, <laughs> meet and learn about new people and kill them. You know, it's yeah. that, definitely that equivalent. I just, I need a t-shirt made. I might have to do it myself, but I need a t-shirt that says that on it. <laughs> Either that or I'll just change IMF to CIC and say, well, join mm-hmm. the CIC, see the world on a monitor. I like that closet. one better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'd buy that shirt. <laughs> so then, opera. With that, the opera begins and Benji starts combing over thousands of people in the audience looking for a match, kind of doing this swipey thing, almost like Tinder. Um, so, <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope, 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 that nope. Ain't it. Oh, hey, hold on. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> hey. Uh, meanwhile, Rebecca Ferguson walks up the steps in a yellow dress. And I've never been more captivated in my entire life. And that dress, not only being magic on her, it's literally a magic dress. Yes, that has it, slits and then doesn't have slits. slits. Exactly. It has slits when you need them. And, right. you know, for a, a well-dressed fashionista spy, that seems like a great dress. But And I bet it has pockets, too. Oh, <laughs> so many pockets. There's one thing I've learned over my few years on this earth is that women love dresses with pockets. Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> Especially fancy dresses that can morph into whatever they need at any given moment. That's right. And then we see Ethan, and he finds his way to the box above the Chancellor, where we see the woman in the yellow dress behind the set climbing a ladder, who then finds his weapon hidden inside the piece of one of the scaffolding things. It's yeah. like in a tube. Yeah, just in a tube. So, Nobody has an actual gun here that wasn't posing as something else. Right. They're all like transformer guns. Right. <laughs> so, you know, Benji's scrolling and scrolling. He's not finding anybody. He switches to the other cameras. He sees one of the blonde guys stealthily making his way behind the stage. So he tells Ethan about it. And Ethan finds his way back there and catches sight of the guy and does this rather impressive jump yeah, he, he jumps sees onto the, guy the eye he, bar that's in there. Yeah, he jumps and he lands on a monkey crouch type thing on the on the bar and then kind of monkeys his yeah. way down. And then he kind of silently lands on the metal walkway. And I do love how the music softens just as Ethan catches sight of the woman on the other end of the backstage. They really are setting up. And, and Tom Cruise has said in interviews that he sort of sees this whole scene as like the beginning of a romantic comedy sort of as boy meets girl type I could see that. situation which coincides with this music sort of softening right. right as he sees the girl yeah he's sort of falling for her yeah but one can only question how can you fall for her if you're already married kind of thing yeah you know? well they sort of just sort of brush that aside they, they for this, do it, this they episode do, of, they do at the end this episode of mission impossible they sort of brush all that aside but they're definitely building that level of tension like you expect them to be making out at the end of the film right very much so. i kind of appreciate from the whole equals thing yeah she never takes the subservient love interest role never. in this and they part at, on terms as equals yes. as they came into the thing as equals. it's it's very satisfying that yes. respect so then the woman then climbs up into the little japanese house thingy and then uh her face is finally revealed and we realize it's the same woman from the uh from the cold open right so and she's or not cold open but the very first scene of the movie rather and she's dialed into the chancellor and she starts assembling this weapon meanwhile ethan is has got his eyes on the blonde guy again he's he's way up high so ethan starts pursuing and we get this great shot just as ethan starts up whatever he's climbing like a 
the ladder or whatnot. And it does this great rack focus that goes from Ethan to Ilsa loading her gun. Right. And then we're back with Ethan and he's on the catwalk now and he's pursuing this blonde guy who's currently out of sight. So he's just, it's just kind of this sneaky, sneaky POV shot. But we do see these close-ups of him assembling the weapon out of the piccolo. It's an instrument of doom. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I had to say it. Um, (laughs) So, Ethan finally spots him and he, and he, un- I love, he takes a moment to undo his bow tie because he knows he's about to get into right. it with him. Right, he's going to get in a scrum, so unbutton the coat. Very unbondy, I might add, right. actually. Bond would never un- undo his tie before starting a fight. But, you know, it's business time. You got to take off the bow tie. <laughs> so then we cut back and we see Ilsa paging through the songbook because apparently she's going to shoot at a very specific note. And I did take down in my notes here what it says uh, in the songbook. And it says, and it's in Italian, I'm guessing, Vicero or Vincero. And the translation of it is mine at last. So kind of eh, eh, mine at last. I'm finally gonna finally gonna get you. Anyway, <laughs> bad. So now we see Ethan make his way out onto these light riggings where the gunman is. But then Benji, who's having issues with his service or what? I don't know what it is. He this, like yeah, it's it's so ridiculous. Yeah, he he does the Fonzie hit on the side of the server thing, which triggers the light rig to send the light rig way up higher than where the gunman is right so now ethan's like ah shit (laughs) he has to jump all the way down to this other light rig to try and fight this guy meanwhile the controller people are also like whoa what's going on (laughs) well the fact that he hits a server and it causes a physical lever right on a soundboard to move up it's just it's, now, I know that there are fully automated ones, right? Right. Of those mixing boards yeah. that you could program it and it will adjust its own whatever you do it yeah. to. But just one that well, happens to be the one that can... Contr- and it's not and even every sound. Time, and every time you hit it, it moves it again. But it's not even the sound. It's rigging. Yeah. Right? So it's a full control board. It's a board. full mechanical... <laughs> it, would be like, it would be like the equivalent of Captain Kirk hitting the right side of his chair and then the slider on the transporter in transporter room seven <laughs> activating itself and beaming something down inadvertently. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a little far-fetched, but, you know, comedy. So, sure. <laughs> so yeah, the controller people are, are trying to figure out what's going on, but then the blonde guard comes in. The blonde guy who's the guard comes in. Dolph. Let's call him Dolph. 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 So Dolph comes in and shoots the two innocent controller people. Meanwhile, then Ethan finally jumps down and kind of lands on the guy and a fight ensues. And <laughs> I love, after they get, both get back up and he's way <laughs> the, taller the, than the, Tom. the Marty McFly moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That was totally what it was. <laughs> that is. That's Even my wife said the same thing. She's like, <laughs> Marty McFly. I'm like, no, I think actually Michael J. Fox is taller. And she didn't laugh because, well, it was really a good joke. So we have a, uh, we see a tech, a little techie contact lens in uh, Blondie. I don't know who, what we're going to call the uh, pic- the Piccolo player Let's guy. just call him Piccolo Dude. Just Piccolo Dude. Piccolo Dude and Dolph. Piccolo Dude and Dolph. So Piccolo Dude has got a fancy contact lens that is uh, live streaming everything that he sees to Lane. So the fight continues and the music is very much matching what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
kind of a the fight and the fight has a very Indiana Jones vibe to it where yes. Ethan is very this weary like you know, he gets knocked down. He's like, puts his hand up. He, like, yeah, he even it, does he, the, hold, 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 on, hold on. Hold on a second. Let me just get my breath back. You know, that <laughs> that whole thing. So then we cut to what I like to refer to as the sexiest moment in Mission Impossible history. Uh, <laughs> when oh. the woman takes aim with the gun and raises it up as she's got well, one, that's not one, it. one, one foot, leg up. One leg up. And then the gun's in between her legs. Yes. <laughs> and then she cocks it. And then she raises it up. And yes. I'm just like, wow. <laughs> They're like, we're going to make this a very balanced and equal movie. But this is the one scene we're going to dump all the misogynistic <laughs> boy fantasy stuff right here. Right here. Well, here's the thing. Every Mission Impossible movie up until this one has one, just one, Sexy moment in it. Although, well, there might be some that they might have fudged it in two. But, but all the other ones, they only allow for one gratuitous sexy woman scene, sexy woman moment in every Mission Impossible movie. Like in three, it's Maggie Q getting out of the Lamborghini. Yes. In Ghost Protocol, it's Paula Patton coming into the Indian. Oh yes. In the green dress. Yes. And biting on the seductively biting yes, on yes, the piece yes. of fruit. I mean. But it's one. It's always just one. This one is loaded, and mainly, and part of it is just Rebecca Ferguson is just a, yeah. It's just not, I don't beautiful. think it's intentional. It's, I think it's she's a, just it's gorgeous. Her presence. Yeah, it really. Because really, is. I think the only the other only one that I'd say is blatant is the one um, when she walks out of the pool. Yeah, and that was that was <laughs> clearly a callback to Bond movies. Yeah, right? very much so. Right. But I mean, well, between that and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, well, yeah, but I mean, the cars wasn't playing in the background. True, her hair wasn't whipping around. And she in wasn't slow taking motion. her top off either. No, she was not. And I mean, the, there's a scene where she does take her top off, but it, it's more, I don't know, technical oriented. It was that was very interesting too, and we'll, we'll I'll save that for when we get there. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, in terms of that, there are two. This is the this is the blatantly this is the in your face yeah the male gratuitous moment absolutely of the movie doesn't need to be in it but kind of feels like it would be missing something if it wasn't it's pretty great at least for me anyway <laughs> <laughs> so she takes aim and then we cut back to Benji and he's banging on the computer again and now the light rig goes back up towards Piccolo Man who is now brandishing this huge knife and we get more Indiana Jones type vibes from that whole right. scenario is he's just like dreading having to fight this guy now right. again, once again and Ethan winds up in a headlock but then this other rig comes up at his feet that raises his legs up and he's able to do this like backflippy thing to right. sort of switch positions with the with Piccolo guy, and then he's able to kick that guy down to his doom. I think he gets like impaled on something, but they don't show it. But then he's now, from the kick that he does, he's sort of hanging from the rig. He's just sort of dangling there. So he climbs back up and he gets the Piccolo gun. He suddenly realizes he has to choose between the gunman in the control booth and the sexy, sexy woman who he's met briefly. Right. And they're both aiming at the same person. And he's like, I don't know what to do here. But instead, he does what Ethan Hunt does, and he finds the third option, which is Correct. to graze the Chancellor. And he grazes him with a piccolo gun. With a piccolo gun, with dead... At least 100 feet away. <laughs> with dead-on accuracy, 
doesn't barely skin him at all. Nope. <laughs> so at that point, then chaos ensues because there's gunshot. And so, <laughs> and Benji's watching and he decides to go full badass and try and take on the guy in the control room, which doesn't quite work out for him, but... He's saved by Ilsa, who shoots him. But then Benji's like, well, who the hell was that? So he then gets to the control board and shines the light on her, which she then, of course, shoots the lights out. Right. And then she makes her break for it. At this point, the security is coming into the auditorium and the show is being stopped. And we see the chancellor and his wife. They're both being ushered into a security vehicle already in the parking garage. And then we, we follow Ilsa for a little bit within the building. And then Ethan sort of sneaks up behind her and he's like, hi there. <laughs> he's like, looking for a way looking out. Looking for a way out. So. <laughs> Oh, and he says, is there something you want to tell me? And she's like, no, not right now. And then, right. and then, they're, then they're off again. So Ethan grabs this conveniently placed rope that was somewhere in the building. And they, well, it was up in the rigging. That's you think true. you could have found yeah. a rope. All right, fair play there. Um, <laughs> you're going to find that there. So they get to the roof of the building. And we get this great little moment where they hop down from one roof to a different roof. And she's like, shoes. And he's like, what? <laughs> shoes, please. <laughs> right. And he helps her take the shoes off. Again, sort of reestablishing that whole like romantic comedy, romantic action comedy. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, and sort yet, of thing. Also establishing how practical she is. Since she's running in her super dress, the shoes apparently don't turn into sneakers. Right. That's the one part of her outfit that does not turn into a super outfit. Right. <laughs> so, so then they get to the edge of the building and Ethan wraps the rope around some sort of flagpole yep. thing. And she wraps her legs around him. <laughs> uh, and, and then he repels down. Very Now, the first time I watched it, I was like, he's got to be burning the hell out of his, his hands. hands. But he took his tie. He took his tie and used it to... Yes. Because upon... I, sec- I thought the exact same Upon thing. rewinding it, I'm like, okay, okay, we covered the bases. Yeah. So he repels down and they get to the... You know, they get back down to the ground, which nobody's conveniently watching them because there's all this, all these other shenanigans happening right. on the other side of the building where everybody's funneling out and everybody's right. watching all this chaos. Not even despite the fact that the flagpole then falls down behind <laughs> right, them. and nearly crushes them. Right. <laughs> and they both do kind of a... The kind of the yeah, kind of a or almost the equivalent of a uh, Pierce Brosnan adjusting his tie after right. after a bit of chaos. Kind of puts uh, Ethan kind of puts his arm out and puts his arm, puts out. The arm in there. Yeah, and, he and, just, just, and we're just gonna walk away. <laughs> so then we cut to inside of the Chancellor's car, and the wife is expressing her distress over the fact that you know he nearly got killed and all this, and, and it's just the ultimate foreshadowing, right? <laughs> because then, of course, boom. The entire car blows up from some sort of bomb that was in a suitcase or whatever on right. the floor. So they're dead. Dead Chancellor. Um, and then just then, as at, right after they see this happen, Benji flies around, pulls up in a car and is like, get in! So so they get in and <laughs> start driving. I love the, how Benji like suddenly is like, hey, she tried to shoot me. Yeah, right. <laughs> Ethan's like, doesn't make her a bad person. <laughs> doesn't make her a bad person, Benji. <laughs> so they're driving and Ethan and Ilsa are in the back seat and Ethan has to search her for deadly weapons. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, he does find a bunch of little weapony, <laughs> nice. sticky things. Yeah. The, 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 the hairpin that could put somebody's eye out. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then he finds a some lipstick, which she refers to as a difficult shade to find. Right. <laughs> but of course, he keeps that. And then uh, Ethan starts kind of grilling her. And he's like, I'm guessing she's secret, British Secret Service. 
sort of saying out loud, I guess, to Benji. But then she finally introduces herself, Ilsa Faust. So in that way that she does. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She then sort of explains that she was to shoot the Chancellor in the same way that Ethan did. But in order to win back the trust of some, quote, very dangerous people, she was trying to infiltrate. So then Ethan asks, he pulls out his phone with the picture. Who is this? Tell me who, who this is. Who is this guy? And uh, she doesn't say anything, but she does then say that they're after, the, yeah, we're after the same thing. But in order for me to help you, you got to help me help you. So <laughs> now you got to push me out of this car. So it looks like I escaped, right. like you captured me. Lane's goons are getting closer. And so she jumps out of the car and rolls. And then the car pulls up to her and they, they stop and pick her up. And then Ethan and Benji drive off. From here, we cut to the CIA and Hunley's mad. Once again, he's looking at the at CNN or some news thing and it shows the chancellor dead in Austria, yada, yada, yada. So Hunley's talking about the coincidence regarding Benji happening to be hopping on a plane to Vienna 24 hours after his last polygraph. Right. And at the very same opera where the chancellor has been assassinated, he's basically saying this is quote, actionable intelligence and that the special activities division, which I... Now is MIF, right? Or IMF? That's I'm, I'm guessing they because the, they folded all the usable assets into the CIA and now they're called the Special Activities Division, which almost sounds like you know what well, it sounds like, like intramural basketball okay. or it, it sounds very sad. Special Activities Division. Sad. Sad. But he goes on to say that the Special Activities Division will now have full discretion in their search for Hunt. And Brant sort of translates that for the audience, more or less, to say that they can now shoot to kill if they find Ethan Hunt. Right. And then, of course, uh, Alec Baldwin, in in a very Alec Baldwin-y sort of way, goes, Whether Ethan decides to live or die is up to him now. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a little overacted, but I'll. I'll it's uh, all right. It's all right because it's Alec Baldwin. I could listen to him read a cereal box and I'd be fine. <laughs> so then we get to uh, Ethan's uh, safe house on the river that I like to call the exposition barge. Totally. <laughs> it seems like anything that they're moving on that wasn't intended to be have that in it is the exposition barge. Every safe house. It was a train in the last yep. one. <laughs> Every safe house is an exposition barge. Of some sort. So this one just happens to be on water. So, but it's this very jerry-rigged houseboat that was clearly owned by the IMF. And then they just left it in the wind after the IMF was shut down or whatnot. And Ethan has basically jerry-rigged everything to sort of kind of (laughs) work in terms of security. You know, he's got a prop up the panel with a with a screwdriver or something right. to, he's got the, like a he's got like a boat knife that he sits there so the panel doesn't fall down and right. hits it with a screwdriver to turn it on right I'm surprised he didn't have to like do a double take and bang at the top of it so it stays on like, right. like it's a Millennium Falcon or something <laughs> so because it kind of looks hot wired the whole thing looks hot wired but anyway so they go in and Ethan immediately starts giving Benji instructions and travel arrangements to get back to DC like Okay, this is what you're going to do. You know, just you're going to rat on me because it was my fault. And I was going... I killed the chancellor. I killed the chancellor, yada, yada, yada. But of course, Benji's like, no, you got to tell me what's going on here. Like, you can't just send me packing and not let me know anything about what's going on here. I've known you too long. Like, just tell me what's up. So then uh, Ethan shows Benji this big all these computer screens with all these profiles of all these guys. And do you recognize any of these guys? 
And sure enough, we see the two guys from the opera and along with a couple other people that we've seen along the way. And and they're all uh, considered to be deceased, according to the CIA. And then he starts talking about how he's been chasing Lane to these different locations where all these terrible things are happening, but he always gets away um, just as the horrible thing is happening. But each of these horrible things are basically a means to an end. Like one bankrupts an arms dealer, another spurs on a civil war, etc., And then we get Ethan's full-on monologue that the syndicate is a rogue nation of agents with the purpose of, quote, destroying the system that created them regardless of who's in the the way. And then Benji sums it up very nicely as saying it's the anti-IMF. Right. Could have just said that and moved on, but right. whatever. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, apparently, Tom wanted to monologue right there or something. <laughs> need a monologue he, somewhere I in need here. To, I need to get really intense for a second here. Hang on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so he's Ethan says that things have basically been escalating ever since the IMF was shut down and believes that killing the Chancellor was this statement piece to the start of a new phase. And Cruz does do a very good job in this area where playing Ethan as this like really fixated kind of guy, like almost kind of cuckoo a little yeah, a bit. A little obsessive. Like, I mean, it may kind of be in his wheelhouse a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's very fixated on this idea that the syndicate is a real thing. And Benji is skeptical because he's like, or it could just be a sequence of random, random events random events that happen. You know, you know, I'm just saying, buddy, you're, you're, you might want to. Put the gun down for a second. <laughs> Just saying. Um, so, but it, and it is perfect that he's doing this because, again, Benji throughout the entire franchise is the audience. Despite the fact that now, now that Benji is this more seasoned agent, it's still he's still Benji, and he's still the guy that that everybody sort of relates to. Right. In the movie. He's he's still your entry into the film. Right. Exactly. So Benji then sort of cuts into Ethan's monologue to say, let me help you. And Ethan's like, I I can't protect you. That's why I need you to leave. (laughs) And Benji gets, I really like this part of it. When Benji really is like, puts his foot down for the first time ever. Right. Towards Ethan. And just be like, that's not your decision to make. Like, I'm going to hang out. I'm going to help you now because... Not only have we been through the shit together, but you're also my friend. So friendship. <laughs> <laughs> and and so and I love how like Ethan's just sort of like, okay. Right. Well, all right then. Right. <laughs> like, He's like, oh, Benji. Or okay. <laughs> right. You know, you've really been working those first person shooter games, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like aggression going here. Our little baby's all grown up. Aww. Aww. Where's Luther when you need him? <laughs> Indeed. So once Ethan sort of recovers from this, <laughs> of Benji yelling at him, um, they're like, okay, well, what do we do now? So they determine they have to find Ilsa. And that's when they uh, they pull out the little lipstick. And they discover that there's a USB port on the end of the lipstick, of course. Because you have everything you need to find me. That's right. And that is about when we get into Act 2. But what is on that lipstick drive, you may ask? Well, if you're interested, you're just going to have to come back to us for Part 2 of this review of Rogue Nation. Indeed, indeed. Because uh, there's a lot more movie to go over. I mean... There's a there's a water cooled donut. There's a car chase where the cars flip an end over end, but I can't give that away. But I just gave it away. But there's a motorcycle chase. There is. Which let's face it, motorcycle chases are not spoilers in Tom right. Cruise movies. Well, and I mean, you've seen the trailer. <laughs> if you haven't seen the trailer, I mean, come on. 
<laughs> so, well, but honestly, the point if you is, haven't seen the movie, why are you listening? Exactly. The point is, there's a lot more movie to go. We got a lot more ground to cover. So we're just going to give you a nice little break right here. You can chill out. You can have a martini. You can do what you want. You can dance if you want to. You can leave your friends behind. And then you can come back and check out part two of our review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. So With or without your hat. That's right. That's right. So, uh, but in the meantime, hey, you should interact with us. We love it when you interact with us. Let us know what your thoughts on Rogue Nation. We have email, we have Instagram, we have Twitter and Facebook accounts. The links to all of which can be found in this very episode's show description. So uh, get in touch, won't you? But uh, I think, uh, you know, for the sake of brevity, uh, should we get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. We're already talked too much. Indeed, indeed. Well, with that, I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem.